Hey folks, this is Rue. And Dave. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we continue with Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey and Chapter 6. Music! So, it is a Saturday. We are recording on a Saturday. Because, you know, time actually means something still. I'm being facetious. Time means nothing. Well, yeah. Look, um, I think it's come up before. ADHD, yes. Um, Time blindness is a thing. It's not always a thing. But it is for me, and many times when it kicks in, it's not so fun. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, um... I, I mean this with the greatest amount of love, but um, <laughs> among our friend circle, there, there's a joke where, like, you know, there's being late to an event, and then there's Rue. <laughs> yes. And sometimes I am early, and sometimes I am late. And sometimes when I'm early, I am extremely early. Like, we're talking hours ahead of time. But, but um, um, yeah. my, my little joke there about the time wasn't related to you at all. It was more about the idea of COVID and how one day melds into the next. And you know, Oh, it's, yes, yes. It's I can September tell you that, yes. in a couple of days, actually. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the joys of... So this has been... Mm, so there's been this kind of mixed... Uh, <laughs> mixed perceptions regarding uh, being ne- neurodivergent in this kind of uh, climate has mixed benefits. Um, ADHD means that you kind of blank, well, it can mean, it doesn't have to, like with the sense of time merging, one day merging to another to another, it's more pronounced, at least I know that it has been for me and many people that I've talked to with ADHD. Um, And some of our other traits have kind of gone into the full-on mode. But when it... (laughs) And it's been great. But like in other spaces, in other settings, it can be quite helpful. Um, It just depends. Like It's going to like with with all of humanity and all biological states and everything, there is a very vast spectrum of presentation. Nothing in nature doesn't like nothing in nature. uh, Well, aside from being alive or being dead tends to everything tends to be in a kind of a spectrum of some sort Uh, and spectrum in this case meaning there is a distribution of variation of which you tend to see different extremes and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's two points that vary like where there's variations between the two points it can just be a bit fuzzy human humans and nature and science tends to be a little fuzzy it's just what's more likely to occur Think electron clouds. And if you don't know about electron clouds, they are fun to look into if you like probability and maths and chemistry. And you know, I, I saw a um, picture today of a cloud that looked like a guitar. And the person who took the picture of it um, was under some power lines. So they were the strings of the guitar. It was really ah, that's cool. cool. Uh, oh, so, um, y- yes. I, I wanted to say, so uh, on the top of, uh, on reading, uh, remember like back in 
I want to say January. I, I know thinking back that long is difficult because this whole year is kind of melded together. And just the fact as you age, time seems to just go out the window. But back in January, I said I had started to restart, was starting to read A Thousand and One Nights. Yes. And I'm almost at the end of book one. <laughs> We're reaching <laughs> September. <laughs> And and I, 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 I'm I'm nearing the end of it. It's it's one of those things where you know I will read like a good chunk for a week or two, and then I would put it down, or I'd go to another book, or I'd stop reading altogether, or I'd I try to swap it out with other books. And now I'm I'm in a better rhythm for reading through books, so I'm um I I yeah. think I'm knuckling down and finishing it. And here's the thing: I'm enjoying a lot of the stories. It's just, it's so big um, that, you know, uh, I, I crave variety. So I will take a break to read something else. And <laughs> the funny Which thing is, is this is just book one. This is the first 300 of the Thousand One Nights. <sighs> it, the, I think it's the Penguin book I have. So, you know, um, I, I guess there will be I, books two this... and book three three or maybe even more and i do want to get through the whole thing but i feel like after i finish book one i'm definitely going to maybe even pick up another classic and then come back to book two i, I i'm taking a break with i'm rereading the Discworld. i'm going right to Discworld after this for a nice uh, a nice palette palette cleanser. cleanser yes yeah. but um mm. so <laughs> you know it's weird over the last few years i i've i've found myself tackling these uh, mammoth undertakings in terms of reading. I, I read, I think back when we were doing 1984, I talked about how I started reading War and Peace. Uh, before then, I uh, the year before, I did Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Mm. Uh, anyone who's tried to attempt that uh, monstrosity knows how difficult it can be. The last third of that book is footnotes. <laughs> oh, cool. um, yeah. There's there. Uh, last year, I did the entire Lord of the Rings again. Um, it's it just I I don't know. It's it's weird. I I find myself at least once a year I got to tackle like a behemoth of a book. So um, there's a book that I've been studying with um some friends, and it's it's kind of it's a narrative, but it's also a historical narrative. So it's kind of it sits in an interesting where there's there's um there's historical context there's all sorts of things that are also raised up there's links to academic papers um things like that but there's also a lot of stories themselves so it is actually a narrative and what's it called uh it's it's called um the dawnbreakers it's about in terms of my faith like that i follow it's about like the early the earlier days like right at the beginning the the um initial days and it, there are some really dramatic um like it is incredible and intense and ten they tended to be witnessed and if they weren't witnessed there were people who like you they actually stated who they heard it from so it's like as recounted by or retold by such and such and such and such and then you they'll corroborate it with and such and such and such and such said that this and they saw that so there's always uh, this documentation of where the information has come from um and this is not like necessarily a whole list of facts. It's it is a story, mm. um, or a lot of stories. But they're like they're stories that are true, but they are also from the perspective of someone who's describing a narrative. So it's a bit. Uh, it comes from the the eye of the beholder, so to speak. It, it, it acknowledges that 
that's acknowledged in the forewords. But the but it is a very big book. Mm. We've only got volume one translated. Volume ah. two is not translated yet. It will be eventually. Um, but volume one, oh, um, the, the is other it, is day, it just it's dense as well as long. It's dense. It's long. It it does this thing where you are because it's it is a narrative, so it's not necessarily always chronological. So some part of it is chronological in terms of this happened and then they went to here and they went to there. But in between, you'll have a little. It's like a flashback or a flash a, a skip forward because it is. It is a historical narrative. So what's happened is like, and later on when so-and-so was asked to recall what they witnessed, when this and this happened and this and this happened, and they'll jump ahead 20, 30 years into the future or whatever. Like there's okay. a lot of that. Um, and there's a little bit in there that <laughs> the one thing that keeps happening is that there are footnotes because it, there are footnotes that are referring to by the uh, translator, the person who compiled and translated Um They've added footnotes from like corroborating documents as well, and the and yesterday, uh, not yesterday, uh, Tuesday, we were studying it and we were doing the story of Tahereh, who not only for for people of my particular faith, but also in general for the region of the Middle East, uh, well, the Persians, uh, Kazakhs, like that region has significance. She was she's known as a woman who was quite. Um, like she's a very good like the poetry she left people now quote her poetry um, she were talking in 18 in the early 18 uh, so 1800s up up to maybe like 18 something I don't I, know I can't remember can but I yeah. interject of just funny so, you, you you bring up them quoting her poetry because that's one thing I've I've really enjoyed about uh, Thousand and One Nights in all the mm. stories when anyone wants to kind of back up the feelings they have or what they're saying, they, they go, didn't the poet say? And then they'll just yeah. recite a huge amount of poetry or sometimes they'll, they'll recite multiple different poets saying yeah. different things about what, what they want to The uh, role of the express. poet. The role of the poet is very different often in, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the term Middle Eastern. It's not the right term i guess uh, oriental um kind of um literature again i'm not a specialist in this is very different the society and because there's there's a spiritual significance for many of them there's a social philosophical they, they're closer to, you'd be closer to describe them as something between a philosopher and a theological skull like they don't sit nice and neat well because yeah? the thing with the poet the the lines that they always quote like there there is beauty in them but you know from my western perspective it doesn't feel like poetry and i just in my mind i attributed that to the fact that it's being translated into english that, and it's not that going will to have that will contribute to that as the well the same effect yeah. yeah that will contribute to that the translation sometimes things get lost in translation or it becomes interpretation uh, there's a whole thing on that like a lot of the quotes that or poems that people I'm going to say quote unquote in the West are familiar with in terms of Rumi. They are not translated quite as closely to the content as it could be. It, it's messy. Um, the reason I brought it up was because you were mentioning the footnotes. And yes, similarly for this one. So they bring up the story of Tahereh 
And we had a page where it was just like there was, I think, half a, like the remainder of a sentence, and then the rest of the page was just footnotes. And I went, okay. And we tend we read the footnotes too, but we try and read them. Uh, we try to read them when they're referred to, and it's, it was just that it was massive. It was a massive footnote. What's hard for me is that there's a lot of Arabic and Persian names that are I can't read Arabic and Persian. Um, I, I third culture kid. We, we we are sincerely messed up. But the fun fact is that they've written it in the you know the romanticized way of, okay. of re- reading it. Right, I'm sitting there going. This is going to be fun. I'm going to try. I can kind of pronounce it, but I stuff it up so much. And I've just gotten to the point of when there's a really difficult name, I'll be sitting there going, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and and, we're the, and luckily we have um, at least one person who does uh, read and read, write and speak uh, uh, Farsi and Arabic and knows how to interpret the, the um, way that it's written in, because he'll kind of go, so what are you trying to read that? Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's pronounced this way. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Um, You're like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, well, yes. I'm like, thank you. I'm like, and once in a while that they, they, they don't volunteer it. Like they, they don't step in unless it's, I'm being atrocious and I've butchered something. Um, <laughs> But they don't do it because they're trying to also build up our confidence. Um, and so one of the things that comes up is that I'm like, okay, need a little help here. <laughs> Can't get through this one. This is hard. And I'm just going, oh, no. And then the same name will come up multiple times in a row, and I will still struggle by the third or second or third time. It's like, nope. It's, it's, probably, it's probably not comparable, but I've been dreading the day that I finally read um, Russian literature on the podcast. Oh, no, it, it, the it's, it's comparable. It just feels worse for me because I'm like, going, this is your heritage. You know some of these names because you know like the significance of, of these people. But your brain is just going, okay, those are letters and I know that I can pronounce them probably, but I'm just going to brain freeze right now, just as you <laughs> want to speak them. Uh, your perfectionism is going to step in right now and tell you, you can't do this perfectly. You shouldn't do it at all. That. <laughs> it comes and it looks over my shoulder. That's the perfectionism. And it's like, no, why do you even, how dare you? And and, and it's not blasphemous or anything like that. It's just my confidence. Like We wouldn't consider that blasphemous. Yeah. It's, it's this is just us being like oh man the struggle yeah. is real and i should really work on my farsi and my arabic i just don't trust my brain enough to do so gotcha <laughs> now you you've kept saying we so i imagine this is a group you're reading through this together yeah it's a bunch of uh younger individuals i am i am the oldest i am honorary <laughs> honorary youth very old for a youth, but I'm an honorary youth, and they just kind of made they've made it open to youngish people. Look, I don't have kids, therefore I, I fall into the category of hey, she's fine. She's got a young brain. She has a young heart. She could she could be an honorary youth. That's fine. Um, so that's what happens. So yeah, we study it. Like I try like every Tuesday, we try short of um everyone being sick or me being sick or whatever. Like I can't physically stay upright. I've had that happen, which stinks. Mm. Um, but we've been doing it over Zoom for a while now, um, since the beginning of the year, pretty much. And it's been pretty, like, it's, it's nice. It's just nice to have something that's challenging, but also that you're reading with others and you can mm. kind of draw on, there's some fearlessness 
there's some fearlessness. Like if you could imagine the option that you are provided with is you are, you want to encourage your fellow people, humans, people in your villages, people in that region or whatever, and you're trying to encourage them, look, it's time to do away with corruption. It's time to speak up and, and let us act with integrity. Let us act with justice. It's time to move towards that. It's time for us to mature as a collective humanity. Right. And the option is you stay silent and just have to deal with it. And, and, and the description at the beginning, the corruption was intense at the time. Like that, that seems to have been a constant for um, all our societies so far. It's, yeah, well, it's when a civilization is is disintegrating. That's generally like it was bad, um, and it was. We're talking. This is widely documented in a lot of the literature out there. Whether whether and even outside of colonial priorities, we're talking cultures that held this area. And these people in very high esteem historically, and were just shocked at just how badly things had become mishandled, and, and right. it was bad. But they had that option, or the option of staying silent. Uh, but as soon as you spoke out, essentially the ris- the you knew you were you were courting death. Mm. You knew you were courting persecution and death. And it wasn't yeah. like you were going to go into a position of power. It wasn't that you were competing for control of the population or anything. Your The whole point was the empowerment and the mobilization of a society to drop the shackles of this this um, of corruption. Not even not even calling for a revolution against the government. That was the other thing. It wasn't about saying down with the government, down with the rulers. It was literally we need to change the way we're approaching things because business as usual it's um, the business as usual is below our station as human beings. Mm. As human beings we are capable of so much more. We have a, a heritage but also we have a um, what's it when you have a um, the capacity of our capacity to have a civilization uh, like a world or uh, like people who I'm trying to think of the word that there is more to us, that the nobility of humankind dictates potential. that. Yes. The noble potential, but also our, the purpose of our existence is to also demonstrate this nobility. That's more the long lines. So it was a stark uh, shift from this. Everyone is only out there to get what they can for themselves or for their own reputation or to, me, 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 and my material being, mm-hmm. yeah? It w- and it's not about whether other people think that you are so erudite and you're so smart and you're this. Who cares what other... In that cares? You shouldn't be staking your value in that kind of estimation, but more in fulfilling the nobility um, that you have. So it was a whole... It's a whole thing. And they just... They, they, they faced death. They just went, okay, that's... If that is the way it's going to be, it's going to be the way, but I cannot be quiet about this. So yeah. the the interesting thing about you talked about, you know, fear of speaking up and there were very serious consequences yeah. for that. Um, as someone who was born in the U.S. and now live in, lives in Australia, you know, that concept has always been so alien. When I read, you know, older stories set in places mm. where you have to be, even today, there are plenty of places on the yep. globe where you have to be very careful what you say and to who you say it to. Yep. Um, just because I'm so used to being able to speak my mind and not the only 
repercussions is the consequences of people responding to what I say, either positively or negatively. Yeah. Um, and by negatively, I mean, they just don't like it and they let me know I don't like it. Or, you know, maybe if I say something really egregious, I could lose my job or like lose social standing, which is fair enough if I chose to express myself in that way in public. But um, that's coming back to Northanger Abbey. Yeah. That, that's one thing from a couple uh, chapters ago that I was, again, uh, really surprised by. The fact that when they were at that party before, you know, last chapter, uh, yeah. Catherine finally made a friend. So did Mrs. Yeah. Allen. And now things are a little bit better for them. But like that first night when they were at the ball, they were at that table. And the people at the table were like, why are you here? We don't know you. And yeah. they couldn't even start a conversation with these people because it yeah. just isn't done unless you have someone to introduce you. Yes, the social norms of the society and what is and isn't considered. I mean, even the whole rant that Jane Austen essentially had in Chapter 5, um, where she's talking about why are we not being honest about how novels and how where, where the place for this is, what is and isn't considered a high standard. By the way, the timing of the book that I'm studying, The um, Dawnbreakers, and this, it's the same period, ah. roughly. Yeah. So, so early 1800s? Yep. 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 And that's the thing. Like it's, we're talking, we're talking, it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's at that, in that time period where this was written and it made a difference because, um, that was influencing, uh, it had an influence upon European, uh, perceptions and society as well. There was a whole, there was a whole Orientalism and stuff was as at its peak again. Um, but yeah, so it becomes interesting when you see it from the perspective of um like in this society you're falling from from uh, the good graces of society or the good graces of company that was a serious thing because it had repercussions for your safety it had repercussions for your ability to um a dignity was part of it like you would lose a lot of dignity but also your survival was affected by this like, yeah, it, it, there was no social security. There was, so charity was, there were limitations as to what kinds of support were available in terms of society, in terms of charities that usually are within the strict confines of the church or requirements. Um, and then also, or maybe here or there some institutionalized options, but they were also unusual. Like it was... Mm. Unusual in the right. sense of it. So if you lost your social standing um, and you were a woman, uh, yeah. Yes, well. that, that was the whole uh, point of that love and friendship movie in that she was she was scheming so hard because if she wasn't attached to a man, you know, where she was in society, she had no life, basically. She would have become destitute. Yes. And when we're talking destitute, we're talking seriously destitute. Like, um, I'm trying to figure out roughly the timing of... Uh, you know, the Dickensian era of, like, the stuff that we were he hearing descri described, like that Victorian England. Wasn't that, uh, wasn't Dickens late 1800s? Yeah, th but we have to imagine the d the conditions he was describing, mm. that was, I believe, I'm going to double, I'm going to go just check, check one thing because I want to remember what era mm -hmm. this is. This is, uh, I think, Victorian era as, era as well. Yep. Okay, so this is pre-Victorian era. Um, this is, uh, trying to remember who was before Victoria and I never, never really know what was before Victorian. 
Okay, the re- uh, the Regency era. Yeah, okay. So Regency era. <sighs> if that why the Regency players are <laughs> responsible yeah, for the music at sense. the top of yes. the top. Yes. So it's the Regency era. Um, you've got George the Third and yeah. George. As, the as an American, I know George the Third. Yes. So we had George the Third, and I just gave you a meaningful look. Mm-hmm. Um, so George III, who who you can tell he had the best interests of his population uh, firmly on his mind, and yeah. he just it wasn't about exploiting or you know abusing or anything like that. <laughs> all the Scottish listeners, all the American listeners are like, uh... <laughs> I'm like, Sp- yeah. <laughs> all the Spanish and French listeners. <laughs> yeah, all the Spanish. Okay, anywhere around the world that even the English know that George III had issues this is our nice way of putting it um but yeah so this would have been after george iii this would have been the repercussions of george iii looked after by his regent um george iv anyway so that time where it was in the victorian era that we started we had a shift towards things like you know the it's come up before you would have seen this in pod in uh youtube videos and things like that where they kind of went huh so the poor people we should probably actually do something about this and it came because those um there's a whole bunch of effects of albert and things were going on there that had an influence of that that's how you ended up with school lunches um that kind of thing happened because Things were deplorable. Like, mm. we're talking terrible. If you were destitute, we're talking living in muck and muck, filth. Uh... And, and just like today in a lot of parts of the world, I imagine back then, the people who were well off looked at poor people as a moral failing rather yes, than um, sort a, of. a circumstance. Yes, that was part of it. Um, also, remember, they had come out of multiple wars. They were, not that the wars really stopped. There were still wars going on mm. after, but those particular wars were very um, intense, very mm. resource depleting. At the same time, there was a sudden shift in the the. I don't know the more details into that, but like I'm sure we could go into breaking it down, the middle class and when that arose and like all those things become a bit messy, but. Mm. Um, in terms of poverty, like when you were poor, you were extremely poor. We still have extremes of wealth and poverty we still have destitute we still have all these things but there's significantly at least on paper there are significantly more attempts at ensuring that at least there is some sort of like like you're not collapsing i don't want to describe it because like there's yeah some horrible things that 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 happen but also that used to happen that were extreme. So basically, you don't want to fall out of favor with society. And especially if you are, like, if we said that, that um, let's take, uh, so Catherine is um, relatively, like, she's m- middle. She's the daughter of a clergyman, so she'd be okay-ish. Mm. She's not quite the level of uh, the landed gentry, but she's also not, you know. She doesn't want for anything. She's okay. Like, they're healthy. They've got enough, as they were saying, a, a good family in as much as there is, or like, there's enough for each of the, the hands and eyes and arms. Like, the, the, there's not really illness or um, starvation affecting them. Mm-hmm. And the mother didn't die in childbirth. And Yeah, like, she's relatively healthy. Like, they, 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 they're a blessed family. Mm. But yeah, so you've... 
it's interesting because even the the expression often is like if you look back um it's the surviving children often are mentioned mm-hmm. if you look historical things so the context is interesting um so yes it's very hard for us sometimes to look back and think of what things were like then without that context and i think this is a challenge because um both with that of green gables and with uh northanger abbey it assumes that our dear listeners and it assumes us as a reader we have some general idea of the circumstances in which this is set. Well, even even Jane Austen's rant about novels talked about, um, or maybe it was our discussion afterwards, but I seem to remember something about uh, novel being uh, modern, how most people read yes. novels of the time. And we, yes. we talked about how what we're doing, you know, that we had that conversation about when does a novel become a classic and how many years have to go beyond. Yeah. But but yet um, there seems to be like, uh, well, I, I think that's the start of how they become a classic because they're so relevant in the times they're released to the times they're released that they have yeah. legs and then those legs can keep them going um, while the, the more human attributes become uncovered as time goes on. That or you need to, for example, accompany a novel with supporting literature to describe at the time what was going on. This like we were talking about this when we were discussing um, 1984, Brave New World, Anne of Green Gables. In fact, we'll probably keep talking about this as mm-hmm. we go through these things. The 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 irony of our the name of our podcast being so many books, so little time is actually right there as well. Not only is it there's so many books out there and there's never enough time to read all of them. In fact, if you think about it, no human being could ever possibly read every single documented story that has been put into writing, let alone all the stories that have not been put into writing and have had oral traditions. Like, imagine that. No one person could know all the stories of the world that have ever been told, Mm. which is a whole other thing. But those that have been documented occasionally... And in fact, anything that is in a historical setting that we don't necessarily have familiarity with, we need to sometimes get to a point where we accompany it with further information because otherwise we lose the meaning and the context of those words, i.e. the Shakespeare situation. Yeah, it's, it's out of time. Yes, it's out of time, it's out of sync, and yet at the same time there's something eternal about it because it is part of our ongoing collection of stories throughout the ages of the dawn of time till now and beyond and so um, it's kind of weird and there's an added layer to that with Ooh. the fact that so far we've covered books in the public domain because copyright law um, in the u.s and a lot of countries alongside the u.s who have you know trade agreements with them have adopted what I find a very draconian copyright policy. And now it's harder and harder for books, well, media, media that should already be in the public domain to be put there now. So, so as, as a culture, we're losing more and more ground um, to uh, art. Honestly, it's a very 1984 kind of situation because the idea is to disconnect our populations with the history that we could be learning from. But if you can't access that history due to financial reasons or other reasons, because simply put, if a publisher decided no longer to create reprints yep. and it's not in the public domain, mm-hmm. how are you meant to access it? And and even greater is that all the artists are inspired by works that came before them. And exactly. if you can't access those works, um, then art, art also becomes quite derivative because there's only the people on top who own all the rights are being able to constantly um, 
I don't want to use the word exploit them, but that's what it feels like. It does sometimes, yes. But uh, but anyway, I we but yes, we've, uh, going talked, into the dark uh, end. We we it's okay. we've, yeah. Speaking speaking of not having enough time, I. I, I think we better get to uh, chapter six because while the conversation has been wonderful, you obviously are listening to get more of the story and not just listen to us talk about uh, what happened beforehand <laughs> and everything that comes to our mind. And the deep philosophies that underpin our anyway. So yes, less deep philosophical theories uh, that we don't that probably others have come up with before us, but it's still fun to explore. So, chapter six. The following conversation, which took place between the two friends in the pump room one morning, after an acquaintance of eight or nine days, is given as a specimen of their very warm attachment, and of the delicacy, discretion, originality of thought, and literary taste, which mark the reasonableness of that attachment. So their common ground. Yep. <laughs> their fandom. <laughs> Sorry. They met by appointment, and, as Isabella had arrived nearly five minutes before her friend, her first address naturally was, "'My dearest creature, what can have made you so late? I have been waiting for you at least this age. Five <laughs> minutes early, and you're late. Mm -hmm. Have you indeed? I am very sorry for it, but I really thought I was in very good time. It is but just one. I hope you have not been here long.' oh these ten ages at least i am sure i have been here this half hour but now let us go and sit down at the other end of the room and enjoy ourselves i have an hundred things to say to you in the first place i was so afraid it would rain this morning just as i want to set off it looked very showery and that would have thrown me into agonies do you know I saw the prettiest hat that you can imagine in a shop window in Milsom Street just now? Very much like yours, only with Kokilko ribbons instead of green. So I'm going to go with Kokilko is, is red poppy. Okay. That's all. Um, I quite longed for it. But my dearest Catherine, what have you been doing with yourself all this morning? Have you gone on with Udolfo? Yes, I have been reading it ever since I woke, and I am got to the Black Veil. Are you indeed? How delightful. Oh, I would not tell you what is behind the black veil for the world. Are you not wild to know? Oh, yes, quite. What can it be? But do not tell me. I would not be told upon any account. No spoilers. I know it must be a skeleton. I am sure it is Laurentina's skeleton. Oh, I am delighted with the book. I should like to spend my whole life in reading it. I assure you, if I had not been to meet you, I would not have come away from it for all the world. Dear creature, how much I am obliged to you, and when you have finished Adolfo, we will read the Italian together, and I have made out a list of ten or twelve more of the same kind for you. Have you indeed? How glad I am. What are they all? I will read you their names directly. Here they are in my pocket-book. Castle of Wolfenbach, Clermont, Mysterious Warnings, Necromancer of the Black Forest, Midnight Bell, Orphan of the Rhine, and horrid mysteries. Those will last us some time. Yes, pretty well. But are they all horrid? Are you sure they are all horrid? Yes, quite sure. For a particular friend of mine, a Miss Andrews, a sweet girl, one of the sweetest creatures in the world, has read every one of them. I wish you knew Miss Andrews. You would be delighted with her. She is netting herself the sweetest cloak that you can conceive. I think her as beautiful as an angel, and I am so vexed with the men for not admiring her. I scold them all amazingly about it. Scold them? Do you scold them for not admiring her? 
Yes, that I do. There is nothing I would not do for those who are really my friends. I have no notion of loving people by halves. It is not my nature. My attachments are always excessively strong. I told Captain Hunt at one of our assemblies this winter that if he was to tease me all night, I would not dance with him, unless he would allow Miss Andrews to be as beautiful as an angel. The men think us incapable of real friendship, you know, and I am determined to show them the difference. Now, if I were to hear anybody speak slightingly of you, I should fire up in a moment. But that is not at all likely, for you are just the kind of girl to be a great favourite with the men. See, this is uh, very much like the men want us to make, want us to be pitted against each other. It's all the men, and we are, you know, close friends, and I would never betray you, you know. Mm. Which, of course, given their their love for the melodrama... Hmm. I also mm. wonder if all those titles she rattled off were real books of the time. They probably are. We can look them up at the end. I think we need to write that down. We shall do that. Okay. Oh, dear, cried Catherine, colouring. How can you say so? I know you very well. You have so much animation, which is exactly what Miss Andrew wants. For, I must confess, there is something amazingly insipid about her. "'Oh, I must tell you that just after we parted yesterday "'I saw a young man looking at you so earnestly. "'I am sure he is in love with you.'" Okay, so can I just point out, she said, I'm rarely, like, when I'm friends with you, I'm really friends with you. And this one is one of my dearest friends. And yet she's like, well, yeah, but you've got this trait, and she's actually a little dull. She's a little... She, she drops little nasty things in there. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. It's so well. Well, I, I kind of, I, you were reading, so you didn't see my face, but I, I kind of quizzically scrunched up because I wondered if the word insipid meant something else back then. Insipid is like weak, like an insipid tea is like a really pathetic tea. Pathetic. It's pathetic. It's but weak. It's remember boring um, almost. I forgot the book, but Dull. we we read. Um, it was Anna Green Gables, I think, where the word pathetic wasn't as uh, negative as yeah. it is today. In this case, we're talking we're talking the kind of like, so so she's contrasting animation with insipid. Mm. So animation meaning there's life in you. Insipid is kind of like you're you're dull, you're lifeless. Ah, that's the impression that I'm getting from the context it is being used in this particular case. Just not really having much to say. Mm. Catherine coloured and disclaimed again. Isabella laughed. It is very true, upon my honour, but I see how it is. You are indifferent to everybody's admiration except that of one gentleman who shall be nameless. Nay, I cannot blame you, speaking more seriously. Your feelings are easily understood. Where the heart is really attached, I know very well how little one can be pleased with the attention of anybody else. Everything is so insipid, so uninteresting, that it does not relate to the beloved object. I can perfectly comprehend your feelings. But you should not persuade me that I think so very much about Mr. Tilney, for perhaps I may never see him again. Not see him again, my dearest creature, do not talk of it. I am sure you would be miserable if you thought so. No, indeed, I should not. I do not pretend to say that I was not very much pleased with him, but while I have Udolpho to read, I feel as if nobody could make me miserable. Oh, the dreadful black veil! My dear Isabella, I am sure there must be a Laurentina skeleton behind it. It is so odd to me that you should have never read Udolpho before, but I suppose Mrs. Morland objects to novels. No, she does not. She very often reads Sir Charles Grandison herself, but new books do not fall in our way. 
Sir Charles Grandison? That is an amazing, horrid book, is it not? I remember Miss Andrews could not get through the first volume. It is not like Adolfo at all, but yet I think it is very entertaining. Do you indeed? You surprise me. I thought it had not been readable. But, my dearest Catherine, have you settled what to wear on your head tonight? I am determined at all events to be dressed exactly like you. The men take notice of that sometimes, you know. But it does not signify if they do, said Catherine very innocently. Signify? Oh, heavens! I make it a rule never to mind what they say. They are very often amazingly impertinent if you do not treat them with spirit and make them keep their distance. So she is... So we will process this bit of it. Okay. So she wants to matchy-matchy because it gets the attention of the dudes. But then at the same time, she says, oh, no, I don't actually want their attention. You've got to keep them in their place. Wait, so you're saying we should dress up the same because it gets their attention, but at the same time saying that, oh, no, we keep keep them in their place. They're not allowed. Are they? Well, I never observed that. They always behave very well to me. Oh, they give themselves such airs. They are the most conceited creatures in the world and think themselves of so much importance. By the by, though I have thought of it a hundred times, I have always forgot to ask you, what is your favourite complexion in a man? Do you like them best, dark or fair? I hardly know. I never much thought about it. Something between both, I think. Brown, not fair, and not very dark. Very well, Catherine. That is exactly he. I have not forgot your description of Mr. Tilney. A brown skin with dark eyes and rather dark hair. Well, my taste is different. I prefer light eyes. And as to complexion, do you know, I like a sallow better than any other. You must not betray me if you should ever meet with one of your acquaintance answering that description. Betray you? What do you mean? Nay, do not distress me. I believe I have said too much. Let us drop the subject. Oh, so this is really odd. She's it's, it's doing very, the whole... um, it's, it's almost... Um... I, I know you won't like the use of the word because of what it pertains, but it feels schizophrenic to me. Like she's of two minds and she's switching I, I, between them. I wouldn't have said that. I would have said she's acting with insincerity. Okay. There's a lack of sincerity in the way she expresses herself. She She's saying, I shouldn't tell you this, but... Like there's a, there's a coquettishness about her. Right. You know, like that... Oh, you mustn't. Truly, I don't think, that, I don't think she's honest with her language is the way that I would phrase it. She's not sincere. Um, she's playing a part, and that is a problem because that's, I mean, they're all playing a part in the society, but you've got Catherine here that is contrasting it. And I guess, I mean, if you argue about it, that's what's making her the hero is because she is naive. She is not aware of all the, she knows generally how she needs to behave herself or her basic deportment, but she's not familiar with the intrigues. Oh, so like, Isabella is playing a game in this conversation and Catherine is unaware that the game is being played. Yes. Like she's Catherine. um, So Isabella is behaving in the way as is expected of a young girl in that society. You know, the, the one that when she's, uh, when um, Jane Austen was describing the novels and like what, what people think of, of women and like they look down on them essentially for reading novels or that they're silly, they're flimsy, they don't have really much thought. She's commenting on it. And basically she's got this one character here that is definitely playing a bit of that, mm. playing it quite heavily. Whereas Catherine, she's explicitly stated she's an, uh, she is the unexpected hero. 
of this story. You wouldn't think that she's the heroine of the story because she hasn't actually done anything that's particularly noteworthy. It doesn't make her very different. But her traits are that she is honest. She is sincere. She is sweet. She is genuine. And she's somewhat naive to the ways of the world, but she's also very, she's a kind kind of person. And that that kindness in itself could be what the heroism is. Right. Well, yeah, a, a lot of the time the main character, and we talked about this before, how, you know, the hero's journey is usually a, a person that you wouldn't think would go on an amazing journey. But it's often because they are just this normal person, but also they have qualities associated to them that makes them uh, where when, it, when the, the call to action comes up, you know, maybe they'll think about it. But in the end, it's like, oh, no, because of who I am, I've, I've got to do this. Yeah. And then we, yes. Yeah. And then in this case, also, we do know that she's a bit silly and a bit naive. And the silliness comes in part from her naivety. But also remember, she was a bit, when it came to her lessons, she, she was never really super at, uh, she didn't necessarily have the follow through. Like she, she liked to play piano, but she didn't really kind of, she never really got to the point where she's accomplished. She um, likes to sing, but she's not actually that accomplished. She likes to paint and draw, but she's not that like she, she that's gone to the wayside. I think, I think that's reflected um, in this conversation as well. Um, We don't know because we don't know these books, but I have a feeling at the time, if you knew what Adolfo was and you also knew what that book that uh, Mrs. Moreland had been reading and that Catherine actually liked, but Isabella said, Oh, Miss Andrews could not get through it. So I thought it was unreadable. I think that um, the way those two novels reflect off each other and how that pertains to these characters would be more illuminating. Yeah, well, I think we'll come back to it in two seconds. Like, we could look... I mean, give me two seconds. No, no, let, let, just... let, let's, let's continue uh, with the book. <laughs> okay, The History of Sir Charles Grandison. So, um, it is a fiction... Let me just read the summary. Uh, a Epistolary novel. What's an epistolary novel? It's a novel written as a series of documents, usually letters, newspaper clippings, things like that. Ooh, that doesn't um, sound um, entertaining to me, but then who no, knows? But it could be. I think that's also the idea. It's like, so it was prior. Uh, he used it as a framing device. The way he did it was like he framed it as though it was a series of letters. Hmm. That had just fa- fallen into his. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, I, yeah. I, I get that. Um, I read a, uh, a a book, a fiction book about Lincoln that used a lot of the um, the newspaper clippings of the time to accompany the story, and it was very confusing until I keyed into that was what was going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's all sorts of like. Anyway, so we'll, we'll we'll go into that a little bit more. But there's there's some I can double check what it a little bit more. But it's interesting that the, the read before she was saying, um, is Adolfo horrid? Are you sure they're all horrid? And then the other way that she's going, oh, that's an amazing horrid book, is it not? It's not bad. It's a, not a negative thing. Mm. Um, so I, think, I think I think horrid, um, at least when they were talking about all the books they were reading, mean that there's like a lot of melodrama. There is. Yes. Conflict. Or there's some sort of there's there's yeah, there's like um, extremes. Uh, yeah. Well, even, yeah. even um, she's talking about, ooh, I, uh, the Black Veil, it might be that character's skeleton. So that, to me, talks about how the Gothic romance really was leading into the horror genre 
over yeah, time. Yeah, you can see the connection. And it's like thinking of the worst thing that could possibly happen or the unexpected, you know, like, yeah. And it does remind um, me that when I was a preteen, uh, pre uh, I love like the works of Arl Stein and all those, you know, like Hardy Boys and murder mysteries and adventure stories that, that always had um, a little bit of darkness to them. I actually think there's a context to this that we're probably also missing um, in terms of like if we went into it, a friend of ours is we have a few friends that are a bit more in versed with um, horror as a genre. Mm. Um, but there's usually there's been like a lot of horrible things that have happened. So remember, the timing of this is we've just had some wars. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, we always had wars, but we've had some pretty bad ones. There's been disease. There has been pestilence. There was. Um, from memory, there were some really bad um, spreads of disease, like a few pandemics and plagues and all that kind of stuff. So that all connects in. Like that would also play a part because it almost to cope with the horrors that society has been through, they try and come up with something that is even more horrible. And in fact, they were suggesting that that's something that will probably happen in our, it's what happened in our history as well, post-world, uh, post-Spanish um, epidemic, uh, post-other um, pandemic kind of situations. There's a shift in the media and it becomes more horror driven because it's like, let's think of something that's worse so mm -hmm. that the horrors that you've actually been through don't feel as bad. Yeah. Um, yes. So we shall move on. <laughs> Desensitization, I guess, is the, mm. is the aim part of it. <laughs> or, or training them into the, the art of very dark humor. Well, well, also, we talked about books as uh, empathy machines, the idea that you, you put yourself into a more horrific scenario and yeah there, there's yeah. almost a, a, a i want to say a gratitude where it's like yeah oh. there was a sentence in there that actually said it uh she was saying something um there while i have so she's missing the guy that she was interested in right uh, so mr tilney is not there anymore and mm. she's a bit disappointed because she did kind of feel affection towards him mm. um did a crush i do not pretend to say that i was not very much pleased with him so she was upset but while I have it offered to read, I feel as if nobody could make me miserable. So she's she's they they are retreating and escaping mm -hmm. into the fear and the horror that others are experiencing. So there's this comparative, oh, I'm I'm lucky. That's not me. That hasn't happened to and, me. And as you talked about last uh, week about escaping into a book when things in life are Hard, a little yeah. tough to handle. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, so we are going to now go, haha. So, so we've got. So Isabella just said, "My taste is this. What's your taste in men? What kind of? It's so horrible. It's just like, what's your checklist for how they should look like? Not looking for the nobility of character. Not looking for their kindness. Mm -hmm. Not looking. For... So, what would you be comfortable looking at? Because we know all men are crap anyway. That's literally what it feels like." Okay. Men are the way they are. There it is. They think of themselves so mu of so much importance. They are all conceited creatures in the world. She's just straight up going, we need to get married in order to look after, to be looked after. Otherwise, you know, we're stuffed up because of society. So we might as well have something pretty to look at. And also she, she talked about, well, here's what I like. So don't betray me if you see someone like that. Don't go after them. And at where we left off, Catherine's like, betray you? Whatever do you mean? Again, that naivety, yeah. like... I would never. Yeah, it's like either betray me by going for someone that is after or betray me as in tell them that they are my type. 
So th- that could be taken again two ways, and I'm sure that's probably just because we don't entirely know the con- like the way that word is used is okay. a bit. It could go both ways, especially with with um, Isabella. Right. So far, she's saying she's double speaking the whole right. way through. She's been double speaking, right? Catherine, in some amazement, complied, and after remaining a few moments silent, was on the point of reverting to what interested her at that time rather more than anything else in the world. Laurentina's skeleton, when her friend prevented her by saying, For heaven's sake, let us move away from this end of the room. Do you know there are two odious young men who have been staring at me this half hour? They really put me quite out of countenance. Let us go and look at their rivals. They will hardly follow us there. Away they walked to the book, and while Isabella examined the names, it was Catherine's employment to watch the proceedings of these alarming young men. They are not coming this way, are they? I hope they are not so impertinent as to follow us. Pray let me know if they are coming. I am determined I will not look up. In a few moments, Catherine, with unaffected pleasure, assured her that she need not be longer uneasy, as the gentleman had just left the pump room. And which way are they gone? said Isabella, turning hastily around. One of them was a very good-looking young man. See what I mean? I don't want to... No, how dare they give me attention? How dare they look at us? Where did they go? (laughs) Yeah. They went towards the churchyard. Well, I'm amazingly glad I have got rid of them. And now what do you say to going to Edgar's building with me and looking at my new hat? You said you should like to see it. Catherine readily agreed. Only, she added, perhaps we may overtake the young men. Oh, never mind that. If we make haste, we shall pass by them presently, and I am dying to show you my hat. So, I don't want to see them. They're gone. Hmm, let's go to the place that we didn't initially want to go. Let's go there, because I said something about my hat earlier, and so now that'll take us into their path. Yeah, she's... um, Maybe it's also an inability, the way she was raised, that she can't say what she means or what she wants. It has to always be in a roundabout fashion. But also remember, the society they're in, women are not really free to express their wants remember we had before Catherine should not even be thinking about indicating that she likes him without him first having said that he likes her right that's not what proper young ladies do and if if we're gathering what we need to from um thorpe's what's her name so isabella's mum They, she and Mrs. Allen had both gone to this, obviously they were schoolmates mm. and Mrs. Allen has gentleman's training. So she has the appropriate demeanor for a gentleman's wife, aside from her obsession with um, fa- fashion, but that's okay. You're allowed to have an obsession um, as long as you you have something to do. But yeah, there's that, there's that kind of aspect of they're trained to behave. So their deportment is trained. The way they behave and interact and speak is trained. And so the whereas um, Catherine has not had the same training, right? <clears throat> she's had a more natural, unaf- that unaffected pleasure. Mm. She's like, okay, no, they're gone. It's okay now. Like she gen- takes her face friend at face value, whereas in reality, her friend has been trained to have uh, like this layer of intrigue. And remember when Catherine was talking to Mister Tilney, he teased her about stuff like the the journal, the whatever, and she's she genuinely goes. Don't actually like what? <laughs> like mm. there's a there's a certain level of that naivety, and he's recognizing. That's why he kind of realized that he teased her too much, mm. and he 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 did that kind of semi apology kind of situation. Like there's a cynicism in him, but it's and, it's. And that's why he ran out of town that night. He's like, oh damn, I went too well, far. Run he's away. disappeared. 
disappeared. We don't know the, wh- wh- why he's disappeared, but I suspect he, he also recognized that he had behaved a bit badly in how he interacted with her. And maybe he felt guilty. We don't know. We will find out. Mm. Um, because obviously. Well, we've only got a few lines left of the, uh, yes, the chapter. Yes. So <clears throat> we're going to presumably go, go to Edgar's building to see Isabella's hat. But they might cross paths with the guys. But if they hurry, never mind that. If we make haste, we shall pass by them presently. And I am dying to show you my hat. Sure. Um, But if we only wait a few minutes, there shall be no danger of our seeing them at all. I shall not pay them any such compliment, I assure you. I have no notion of treating men with such respect. That is the way to spoil them. Catherine had nothing to oppose against such reasoning, and therefore to show the independence of Miss Thorpe and her resolution of humbling the sex, they set off immediately as fast as they could walk in pursuit of the two young men. So that's the whole thing. Like, she's like, Catherine said something that made sense. Like, why don't we just wait? Because they'll Mm -hmm. leave, they'll walk, and then we can follow and do our own thing. But it's obvious Isabella's a bit... Well, also, we we did talk about last week how she's 21, so she's definitely feeling that that societal pressure like why aren't you yes. married yet and also remember she's not from a fortunate family she would mm. not be a favorable match because she's not wealthy and her mother is is essentially th- there was a whole thing mm-hmm. alluding to legal issues yep. um and and that she's a widow and that there were legal issues like there's all sorts of yeah. stuff and so d- we'll find out for sure what's going on. Like, we're getting to know these characters. And you can see that they are complex characters. Catherine, out of all of them, is the least complex. She has, there's no intrigue about her. There's no artifice. She's just genuine and a little dopey. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also, like, she's also, in, in theory, she is young. By our perceptions of the world, 17 would still be considered very young. In their you their society, arguably, it wouldn't. However, well, yeah. Well, there's this weird thing I was just thinking about. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, anime and a lot of the uh, more popular long-running series. The main character uh, is always kind of a bit of a dunce. You know that they're they're good natured and and they're 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 strong and they work to protect the people around them yeah. and they make friends with most of the people they come up against. But it's always played off a joke that they're they're not too bright. They have other people for that. I actually argue. I would debate the following. I think that we depict and we mock um, that vulnerability, that innocence, that. Um, I mean, the, the way it was described by, by Austin, it's it's naivety, mm-hmm. that she's naive. She is naive of the world. There's an absence of cynicism. But our problem is that as as we see that innocence in a child and it, it sometimes makes us have the, the it, it provides a false sense of superiority. Well, and where we look down upon adolescents and youth and children as like, oh, but you don't know how the world works. Yes, um, but but I think it's also uh, it's this, this is this is going to feel insulting, and I don't mean it to be to our listeners, but I've always felt that people who are pessimists have been twisted. Like, uh, no, no, like no, life I, I, has yeah. life has ground them down because it's always the pessimists who look at people with optimism and talk about oh you're so naive you just don't know how the world works i yeah. i choose to be honest with 
this is the truth of it all, you know. Well, Thing, things yeah, are horrible, and, and you have to prepare yourself for that. If, if you just go around yeah. thinking the best in people, you're going to get hurt, and that's no way to live. When, in my mind, I know I'm more cynical than I should be, and I want to be optimistic, but it's, yeah, it's that I, I'd rather see. Uh, it's hard. It's hard because of that fear of yeah. getting hurt, but I would rather see the good in everything. And and, and even if I do get knocked down, I, I prefer to... Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd like to be as optimistic as possible. And I think there's, there, and then you've got the whole other extreme, which is that toxic positivity, which is also not helpful. Um, but, but and that's then you've got being, the other, no, no, I, I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not saying that being optimistic not immediately means toxic positivity either. It's, it's a kind of, it's a really fine thread. It's like, it should be something we ask ourselves. Why is it such a common trope that we associate People who are willing to see the best or maybe are unfamiliar with the worst that humanity can, can contribute. Mm. Why do we almost mock that or the story is them losing that sense of yeah. innocence or the story is them being, I mean, um, David Copperfield is, a, is another story that's very interesting in that regard because mm. you've got, you know, the, the child that despite the hardships and I think still remains true to their nobility and to the, not, not in terms of their station, but in terms of their, their inner core remains. That, that's almost uh it's not quite, but it's pretty much an autobiography of Dickens. He was yes. basically that character. And also a lot of Dixon, Dickens uh, works tried to contrast that nobility that can persist. I mean, we've, we've done a full circle. We're back to this idea of standing up for our inner essence. And I think there's nothing wrong with being, so you can be familiar. And in fact, it is more honest to be, to acknowledge that there are challenges in the world and that people have gone through hardship and that hardship is a reality. We don't de deny that reality in any which way. And that hardship doesn't have to be the source of nobility. We don't need to, I mean, this depends on, on your your spiritual or philosophical underpinnings. It can be an underpin, it can be a, um, it can be something that helps refine a person that can bring out, those challenges can bring out the inner nobility, but it doesn't have to be in terms of, we, we, we shouldn't be the cause of it for another person. Yeah, Does that make well, sense? I, and I, I think, really, I think it is a choice. It's just that so many people default to the pessimist side because you, you can choose to be couched and be cautious and see, see like the, the downside of everything. But how is that any different or better than the opposite? See, and I don't even go into the pessimist. I don't even, the terms pessimist and optimist, I find them too, um, what is it called? Uh, I feel they're dichotomizing. Okay. It's not necessarily, you know, what I mean? like it's not necessarily that someone always looks for the worst case scenario. Yes, those no, people no. exist, but they, there's usually a cause for it. And often it comes from a fear of vulnerability yes. or scars that are formed or really bad cumulative experiences or things yes. that they have witnessed. So and, and, and I think we need to honor the fact that people have gone through these things. It's about what can I do as a person to rather than in an overprotective, paternalistic, um, false sense of superiority that, oh, I know what it's like to go through hardship and you don't, and that's why you're so naive and you don't understand and therefore I know better and I don't want you to be hurt, so therefore I'm going to tell you, you know, that kind of looking down, that's never helped. If you are honest and able to have conversations about it, say, yeah, this is hard and this is difficult and it has left changes in my behavior, but I'm conscious of it and I'm working through it. We need to be a lot more able to be open and honest about um, 
And also compassion. We've talked mm. about this before. That compassion. I think that our challenge with um, coming back to the book so we don't go completely into the woods, but coming back to the book, one thing is you can see in Catherine, she is a loving and a kind person. She is a bit naive to the ways of the world. Mm -hmm. She is naive to those intricacies and intrigues and weird stuff that goes on. She's not like cynicism is an alien language to her. Well, she she's even she's reading books that are, quote unquote, horrid but it's like a fascination that oh my goodness the you know this is spooky or or what this poor thing that's happening to this poor person could you yes. imagine yes like there's 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 a fascination um and i mean depending on how like there's you know we actually have that in our current society not talking horror obviously we still have horror but i'm talking this idea of trauma uh, trauma pornography not mm. literally pornography but this idea of when we take solace or comfort or entertainment out of the trauma of others that mm. is a thing it is not good I, there's I think also ex yeah i think that's kind of um I think that's kind of the what's behind the popularity of cringe comedy in the last twenty yes, years. Yes, and it is how it is uncomfortable literally, these people are. Yes, and it's 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 a really strange. Um, it, it, it's strange. What what we seek derive pleasure or temporary sense of reprieve from ourself. That's a lot of it. Is you're you're distracted enough from whatever else is. Uh, that you need to face within yourself that you don't you don't face it it's it's an escape we've talked about this in mm -hmm. in other settings that escapism is a big thing and you know what to be fair people in a society in a, when we're in a society that doesn't openly address the source of trauma or the impact it has on us or allows us to be vulnerable safely people mock and laugh at this idea of a safe space but if yeah. you cannot for one moment put down the the load you are carrying yeah. the pain that is with you you never feel safe literally maslow's hierarchy of needs safety is in there mm. and as shaky as maslow might be on some things the sense of safety is a universal need and then you've got the whole attachment theories and stuff but like there's there's mm. meaning to this there is if, a, if we don't have yeah. a place to recharge and, and recharging means many things but if we can't yes. have if we don't have a place in our lives where we can just kind of um, get back the energy we've spent yeah. living in the world, and 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 for a lot of us, uh, living in the world is very traumatic or yeah. or difficult or yes. or just tiring. Yeah, uh, and 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 I would straight up go like escapism. I'm not a person who actually condones. It's not that I condone or doesn't. I'm I'm not going to judge a person who undergoes escapism, especially in a world where we don't actively create spaces for folks to recharge, or or to regroup or be able to deal with the the, the what they're carrying. They, they, mm. It's just more and more gets loaded up. And if you are of certain populations, and if you are born a certain way, yeah. if you speak or learn a certain way of thinking. All these factors come in. I'm not even. I'm not even starting. We're talking. Yes, skin color. That's part of it. Your poverty. That's part of it. Disability. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. Your gender. I like your gender. Your um, sex. Your mm -hmm. sexual identity. All this stuff. All these different things. Because we do live in societies where there are uh, layers and layers of judgment and treatment and injustice and other things that happen. So of course, people are very, very, very tired. Um, and we and 
I mean, then there's competition. You have this competition for who is suffering the most. And then, <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's really bad. Like, there's some really rough things that are going on. Um, mm. And rather than focusing so much on this competition of who's suffering the most, can, there's now, hope, thankfully, more of a culture that is slowly developing of let us have compassion towards everyone who's going through the stuff and let us be conscious that for example if there's an urgent need to deal with one crisis at a time we might need to prioritize one one uh, lots uh, of suffering over another in terms of immediate treatment but that's just basic medicine um usually when you have a someone come in with a bleeding wound and they are bleeding out you treat that first before the person who's come in with a minor like you know Broken a bit bone. of a tummy upset well, yeah, even a broken bone, like you're not going to put that up if someone is, is going to risk bleeding out. Mm. Yeah, for example. Um, Can I just the, take yeah. us way back to you when you were talking about the way that uh, innocence and naivety is treated in our society, you used the word parental. And uh, um, that's an idea, as you were talking about it, that, that kind of hit me. I think it's because um, a lot of people think of optimistic as childlike the idea well, that if you haven't if you are naive if you're optimistic if you're not cynical and pessimistic that means you haven't grown up yet yeah well it's it's yeah so or it's 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 that you are you're um what, okay have you you would have read this in different characters you know when they there's a child that is that is why uh is hardened the, you mm -hmm. know the 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 trope of yeah. the hardened street urchin and things yeah, like be that because they've, they've had to survive yes and then that that harshness that survival brings out in a, in a person um and then in those cases then you you don't uh then it often cultivates a fear from that person because you don't know how desperate they could get to cause you harm and that gets really messy mm. the thing that i'm talking about more so is that the way in literature, in media, in art, even in society generally, we have, we either treat innocence as a commodity, something that is super celebrated and like, oh, look at how innocent, uh, like, you know, like that over and we play into it. And then it becomes something also very disturbing and horrible as well mm -hmm. in a different way. But in general, when we look at a child's innocence or honesty or uh, an adolescent or anyone who is maybe less familiar with a topic and we're not talking a willful ignorance it's just that they hadn't even thought of something yet mm. we mock it or we tell them oh you just don't know any better here let me educate you even that expression let me educate you and, as opposed and... to let me support your process of getting familiar with this topic let's explore this together there's so many ways we could be perceiving this and and I I felt um, guilty of that actually when we were talking about John at the end of Brave New World and I constantly talked about you know the guy's only a teenager you know and he's having this conversation with the world controller but you know he, he's arguing a point you know it, basically the the core of my argument even though I wasn't kind of cognizant of it at, at the time was I'm so much older I've gained all this wisdom so now I kind of I I think I have that that um, Mm. that uh oh i'm trying to think of the right word um i'm i was looking down on john because he was only 19 years old and he was trying to yeah. argue about the way the world works and i had that 
oh, yeah, I, you don't know how it works yet. You'll get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I did that too, but that's particularly because I was looking at their particular world and the contrast between them. And we are all going it, to, it's not about guilt or innocence or anything like in this case. All of us will fall into these patterns because A, we are educated to to follow these patterns. Yeah. We are cultivated to fall into these patterns. And and it's about continuously reflecting on it, going like that situation, was I looking down on that person? Was yeah. I actually seeing them as a fellow human being capable of of change and learning and and all these wonderful things? Like, who am I to say that I have the the soul um I am the sole authority on who and who is not capable of change. Yes, there and, and again, there are going to be people who do some horrible, horrible things in the world. And it doesn't mean that they can't change. It doesn't mean that we also accept, oh, well, you can change. Therefore, you are exempt of any consequences to your actions. No, no. There are consequences. That is literally the contract you sign when you, well, <laughs> the unwritten signed contract of society is that you you comport yourself in a way that um, allows you to benefit from its privileges, in theory, but at the same time, you you need to stay within certain confines of, of expected behavior. Um, and if you are causing harm to others, that, that there needs to be consequences to that. The problem is that we're not always conscious of what harm constitutes of, and sometimes what society deems harmful, what society deems helpful, again, look at, lot, look at, looking back at, yeah. A lot Looking of people in book. power never suffer consequences. Yeah, let's, their that's a whole nother thing. There's always these exemptions and that would be corruption and greed mm -hmm. and status. And we know it's not real. Like there's a whole bunch of hypocrisy as well. Um, yeah. But if we're looking here at this society here, mm -hmm. in in bringing back it back in, to the book, bringing it back to the book because we could go really into some stuff, man. Um, going into this book, We've got this situation where they live in a society where there are women particularly are in a rough spot. Depending on which strata of society you are born in, that can be even rougher or what you are like, what, um, whether you are the firstborn, the secondborn or whatever, all well, that mm -hmm. can make a difference. If you are married or not makes a huge difference. Um what your reputation is within that society will make a difference. And then you're told you have to live by certain formulas of speaking and acting and behaving, which is incredibly intense. So Catherine, so, so Isabella, we've got here is a bit coquettish, flirty. As, I mean, as far as anything goes, she's very flirty. She doesn't respect men, mm. but she sees them as a requirement or a necessity to survive in this society. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if you look at all these characters, if the if we looked at the, by the way, yeah, those books are real. Castle of Wolfenbach, Clermont, Mysterious Warnings, Necromancer of the Black, Bird, all this kind of thing. That they're real books. Excellent. They are real uh, <laughs> gothic <laughs> gothic romance. Um, I'm sure there's one or two of them that are not gothic romance, but they're similar literature. Can, can I uh, let yeah. me ask you a question? Um, do you because the whole that whole conversation, Isabella was very two faced, or at least she she was. She was not sincere, as you put it. Um, yeah. Do you think, like, she feels like she's found a genuine friend in Catherine, or she's capable of actually having friendship, or is it just another means to an end for her? I mean, here's the question that we we raise. So I'm going to point out one thing. So, for example, sociopathy. Sociopathy is not a thing. There is no diagnosis called sociopath. That's something that is popularized, but it's not a thing. Sociopathy as a symptom 
is a thing. And we know that our education and our society and our cultures can breed it or we can be educated to become more right. sociopathic in our tendencies. Um, <laughs> especially if society treats you really badly. Mm. I, I, I remember reading about how um, in most cases it's linked to childhood trauma. Yes. So, and if you look at this here, she is behaving in a certain way as it is expected. Their common ground or their common thing is they are both young women with, with limited acquaintances in an area where you need acquaintances in order to connect with other people. Right. There is like the Facebook of ye old Facebook. If you aren't friends, you can't, there's no way of talking. You need to, mm. Your friends are friends. Um, Facebook but with higher privacy restrictions. Yes, yes, I just said it. Uh, <laughs> and yes, that information can get used for the entertainment and the exploit of others. That's another thing. Um, and control. Data and Yeah, data sharing. It happened. Um, oh, God, why? Um, but so what happens is that we've got this situation. Their common ground is, is these current uh, books that are the trend. Yes? Mm-hmm. They like these particular kinds of novels. They make them feel better about themselves. They're escaping their reality. Whereas with with Catherine, it's more just like an, a past, pastime, like it's entertainment. With um, Isabella, it's likely actually trying to deal with her lot in life. Uh. Yeah, so they're slightly different because Isabella knows that some of the stuff that happens in those horror books is actually a little bit too close to home to what happens in society. I was also thinking about how it was said that she's the eldest of the daughters and the others kind of follow her lead in terms of how she dresses and how she acts. So she's probably had yep. that pressure from her mother and her little yep. sisters, um, just, uh, what's the word, um, shadowing her? or Yeah, this pressure on her to to snag the best mate because she's also the prettiest of the sisters. Right. So it's um, like if you, if you can't get a man, what... How, what uh, chance do your sisters have? Yeah, and it gets more messy and intrigue-ish because you've got the brother who goes to school with Catherine's brother, so obviously mm. older, um, but we know that they aren't financially a strong family. Mm. And socially, we, it hasn't been clarified, but the fact that there's some legal stuff and it's hush-hushed and it's not really, like, it's kind of like, mm, yeah, whatever something is being implied that something is going on in the background or something has happened in the background that has led them to kind of fall out of grace in part. Not bad enough for them not to associate. So mm. it's not obviously something massively intriguing and everyone knows. Mm. But there's something going on. Like they, they've got, there's some family issues, right? Yeah. Which immediately in this society where everything is in, everything has to do with your reputation and your financial status and whatever, puts more pressure on the kids to marry um, wealthily mm. and marry as soon as possible. And with 21, she's hitting that age where like she's heading towards 25. <gasps> mm. How could you, you know, that's, that's old maid. Well, well, well she, she's, if we're, if we're taking uh, Catherine's 17 year old as like prime marriage age, um, yeah. 21 is the middle point between 17 and 25. There's four years on each side. Yeah, so she's right now at the age where she she should be getting married. And and it feels very strange to say getting married, whatever. It's like literally it's – it's you saw the way that she's talking about – or you heard. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> you can hear the, the way that she's talking about men. Mm. 
she, you can see the way that she intrigues, like, oh, I wouldn't give them attention for the world. Where have they gone? Um, <laughs> that one looked really good. And yes, there is what you were saying before. Your looks are often taken as an indication of the goodness of your character. Mm. Um, if you are wealthy, you would look better. And I mean, in theory, if you are wealthy, you would have access to more health options. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, because you could afford the doctor or you wouldn't be treated as substandard and not worthy of care and caution. So yep. yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of that as well. Because yeah, for example, you'd still have most of your teeth. Um, that would be a thing. You can, you can buy better clothes. You've got the education. Yes, of some sort. That's oh. actually a thing. Legitimately, your appearance it would have been at least a cursory indicator of your station um, and likely health prospects, which, of course, in a society where it's all about um, mating to compensate for the fact that you have a population that was decimated through wars uh, and conquest and expansion of the, mm -hmm. the British Empire, that would have been a thing. Yeah. So it's you know, there's there's layers to this. If you break it down, there's more and more layers. There's a reason the society is the way it is. There's there's um, a nation a nation of conquest and colonialism to feed. You know, the machine. Uh, the machine, yeah. I mean, we talk about the machine of society, the cogs of society in 1984, and we talk about them in Brave New World, but really. If you reflect a little bit with a little bit of more critical thought on Austin and you, and I mean, um, Wuthering Heights, uh, all of the all of the more classic, even especially the novels written by the women of the age, Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, there you can actually see the cogs if you look closely enough. Yeah, and, and it's funny that stuff was there in Anna Green Gables, but it seemed to be in the background, maybe because they were like in a small, quaint country town away from like a major city. Yeah, but also in that town, the cogs were very much look. This is farmland. Um, yes, there's creativity. Yes, there's stuff going on. But this is farmland, and let's just focus on the fact that the the societal pressures and challenges are very closely tied in with church and belief because that was, I mean, that was the language that um, Ellen Montgomery, as we did our little bit of a history drive, that was what she was familiar with, mm. What was that setting of church and small town and small village, whereas this is a broader society. Yeah. Um, and, and even those, even though we're just talking specifically about Bath and the surrounds, this is beyond. a place and Bath and just immediately beyond. Um, we're talking about a society where everything has been determined by factors. And I mean, mm -hmm. ultimately, if dear readers, you would, dear listeners and readers, you would like to take that reflection back and you think about our current society and what informs our actions and our priorities and all these things, it's everywhere. You can see mm -hmm. the signs of what we prioritize in our society based on what actions and what has happened to you inform know that. that that old saying no man is an island yeah mm. we we don't live alone and especially nope. you know most of us live in large population centers so we all affect each other and we've all banded together and created mechanisms over time to facilitate uh, uh helping as many people well, to keep to keep these large population centers running and sadly uh there's there's a lot of maintenance and uh tinkering that needs to be done to make uh, them work fairly for everyone involved and yeah. we need to I mean, keep I'd moving even argue in that we direction. Need 
I'd argue we need to actually review what it is that we prior. I mean, we we're talking about this before. Mm -hmm. Like, it's time to possibly also review what is it that informed the structures to begin with. Yes. If if, if yeah. Yeah. And speaking of time, though, I, yes, I it think is definitely that... time to wrap up, and therefore we shall continue our intriguing, uh, triggered off uh, discussions, because this is what happens. Like you start looking at it and you're going, so there's reasons for this behavior, why they do it, why they speak a certain way, why they're not necessarily um, transparent in their the way they interact. Yeah. So on that note. The music at the top of the podcast is from the 2014 adaptation of Northanger Abbey, played by the Regency Players and composed by Charlie Mole. The music at the end of the podcast is I Am The Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me on Twitter at Rumikmu. And I am over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. If you would like to contact our... Uh podcast's twitter or facebook page it is at smb slt podcast and if you would like to email us you just stick in at gmail.com at the end of that please we'd love to hear your feedback about not only the books we are covering what you think of the book what you think of each individual chapter if you have thoughts we would like to hear them but what you think of our discussion if you have books that you would like to recommend to us to read in the future we would love to hear them and we will take all uh suggestions seriously even if we choose not to go down that particular path yeah it's fun to to explore and you know if we don't read it on the podcast we may be reading it in our private time and we can pro it'll probably come up actually that that uh, a good example of that um early on um when we were reading 1984 we hadn't decided what the next book was going to be and uh, we tested a couple books before we settled on Anna Green Gables. And one of them was uh, Rue read me the first chapter of Howl's Moving Castle. And um, it did not, uh, we, we found we were forcing discussion as we were reading it. So we thought it wasn't good for the podcast. But what happened then is that in my own time, I read the book myself and I quite enjoyed it. Mm, it's, it's, yeah, well, it's a beautiful story and it's a fun <laughs> it's a fun time yes we do recommend it at some stage if you get a chance read Hal's Moving Castle and yes um, I, I I will always encourage and promote reading of uh, young quote unquote young adult or children's literature because it's as we were talking about this entire podcast it's nice to go back to that space it's comforting it's very comforting and it's nice and it, it, it reinvigorates your sense of curiosity for the world and hope I guess hope is the word. Hope is the watchword. So we hope you have a good time and we will catch you next episode. Stay Bye. safe. Happy reading. Goodbye, everyone.